Thank you, Kevin. Well, uh, two Mondays ago, my wife and I, Jen, uh, and I had the chance to uh, fly to Florida for me to get away and her to get away, us to get away together. We like to do this as much as we can, um, but uh, once a year uh, for sure. Uh, I can get a little discouraged and depressed in the wintertime. I don't know if it's seasonal affective disorder, a.k.a. sad or what it is, but um, maybe growing up in the Caribbean has impacted that for me, where I prefer to get away a little bit when it is really cold. And so here's a situation. We're um, flying uh, out to Tampa from Philly. We're flying Southwest Airlines. If you've ever flown Southwest, you know that you get to uh, kind of choose your own seat, you get assigned a boarding position, right? And so we got to the airport and we had a boarding position assigned. Jen was much earlier than I was. The reason is because our flight took off at 10.45 a.m. Monday morning. You're allowed to uh, check into your flight 24 hours ahead of time, so just do the math with me. That would put it at 10.45 a.m. Sunday morning when I was speaking, but that we would have been allowed to check into our flight. And I thought it would be a little awkward for me to pause right now and just say, hang on while I check into my flight. So I arranged for hers to be checked in automatically. We arrive, and she gets on early, and I get on way late. I'm about the 10th of the last person in line coming on the plane. She's sitting in the the middle of the three uh, seats there, and she's saving the aisle for me. And I see a lady who's about six or seven rows, people in front of me, ask her, kind of lean over, like, can I take the seat? To which Jen, I could, no. I mean, she's saying, no, like, my husband is here, but then, like, this one is available. And the lady seemed, from a distance, seemed a little perturbed by being put out a little bit that I couldn't sit right here where I wanted to and had to go over there. And she hesitated for about two or three seconds looking over that seat until she finally went to the window seat. And so she sat down in the window, and I came by and sat in the aisle. And as I sat down, I looked over to see who this lady was, and and here's what I see over there. Her body is shaking and her hands are shaking like that. And I thought, well, maybe she has tremors. You know, that could be. I know people like that and that's fine. Um, but she's in her 50s and about 30 seconds later, she can't keep it in anymore. And she looks over to me. She's like, I'm so nervous. I'm like, hi, I'm Tim. You know, that's kind of how I started that. And uh, she ha- she's like, I haven't flown in 25 years. And the reason I'm flying now is because the Eagles were on last night for the Super Bowl, and we had a like, company Super Bowl party, and I wanted to be there, and but I have a conference in Tampa I have to get to like today, otherwise I would have driven. Like last year, our conference was in Denver, and I drove to Denver. The year before that, it was in Orlando, and I drove to Orlando. Like, I haven't flown in 25 years. I'm so nervous. My knees almost buckled two times coming down the aisle. And that's why she hesitated there, because she had to get up the nerve to get around Jen and to the window seat. Not because she was angry. She just hardly had any capacity left. She was so nervous about what was about to happen. And she pulls out her phone and is trying to do something on her phone like this with the fingers going all over the place. And I thought, time to pull the barf bag up. And I'm glad I'm not sitting directly next to her, Jen. (laughs) How about you? So we begin sitting there, and and here's what happens on an airplane. If you've flown, you probably don't even think about this moment, but you have to get pushed back from the gate. And so the plane moves backwards a little bit. Hardly a little bump. And if you were, if I could do this with... Here's what happens. We, we move back a little bit. What was that? That was the seat in front of us. She grabbed the guy's seat in front, and it went forward and back, and he turned around to us. I'm like, that wasn't my fault. Like, that was her. And she's holding on to that thing seriously, and she's like, what, what was that? And I'm like, at this point, we're going two miles an hour, right? 
backwards. I'm like, this is going to get a whole lot worse. I said, they were just pushing us back from the gate. You know, we have to go back. And then the flight attendant gets up and puts the, um, the life vest on, is talking like, can I please have your attention, blah, blah, blah. Puts the life vest on. She's like, do we have to wear those? I'm like, no, I mean, not unless we're in the water, but we're going over land. Like, if we go down, there... I didn't tell her all that. <laughs> I just said, no, 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 you don't have to put that on. So I'm like, okay, I need to tell her what to expect. Um, because if she's this freaked out by the bump, like, this takeoff is going to blow her up. Like, listen, it's going to get really loud, and then the plane's going to shake a little bit. That's all normal, and then we're going to start taking off. And if you got gum, like, chew the gum, and you're just like, oh, like, I saw my hypnotist and a therapist to try to help me with this, and I don't know, I don't know. Like, okay, all right, well, let's listen. We're going we're gonna to go together. And when I said go together, I didn't mean, like, you know, I just meant we're going to fly together. Then I had to clarify that comment, too. Anyway. We get ready to go, and you know, on the on the runway, we're getting ready. It's our turn in line, and uh, you can the jet engines are starting to you know get going, and everything in her, all the muscles in her, contract into a small and controlled thing she can have. And she's holding onto the armrest like this, and I'm sitting there thinking this is not going to last long at all because she's going to need somebody, not something, to hold on to, which is something I learned as a psychological reality. If you think you're going down, you don't actually want to hold on to something. You want someone to go with you. So I'm like, okay. So I kind of reach my hand over. In the meantime, she's reaching her both of her hands over anyway, and she grabs on like a death grip with, with, to my hand over Jen, like with Jen, all, all here, like, like we're going to make it. Like She's holding on tight and shaking and all that. And then then she just locks into my eyes and very uh, kind of robotically is like as we're going down the runway it's like I don't like this I don't like this I don't like this and she couldn't stop it like she couldn't stop herself from doing this and I'm and I'm looking at her straight in the eyes like I don't want to take my eyes off you because I don't know what's going to happen next I said breathe let's just breathe through this remember we talked the therapist probably talked about let's breathe through that and then I'm trying to talk to her about her family and you know, I don't like this, I don't like this, I don't like this, you know, over and over and over again, and we have yet to get off the ground. <clears throat> so we start climbing, and she's like, she releases grip a little bit, and she's like, are, are, we, are, we, are we up? Are we up? I'm like, yeah, we're up. So she takes a peek over the window, slams down the shade. <laughs> I'm like, ah. We get to cruising altitude, and the plane just drops a little bit. You know how that works. There's kind of even a small little five-foot drop or whatever. And what was that? I said, listen, okay, this is going to be normal along the way, and it's going to be okay. Like, we're, we're going to make it through this flight, and it's going to bump a little bit, but I'm telling you, this is, this is going to work. She, she says, are you a therapist? <laughs> like, uh, kind of, maybe, I guess. And I gave her my card, and we talked uh, along the way, and then she settled in a little bit. All of us, all of us have fears. All of us have significant fears and deep fears, don't we? Now, all of us have stuff, maybe not to that degree, certainly not to that expression for most of us, but come on. All of us, if we're honest, have fears deep in that go hard after our will and a heart and faith and family and even our own identities. That if we're honest, if we could really let them out, we would actually say, you know, that reminds me a lot of me. Like, I don't want to get on the flight. <laughs> I don't want to do that thing that I think I should do. I don't want to get after that. Again, I've kind of given up hope for, and if I were to try that again and try again, like, I don't think I really want to do that. It's so intensive to really deal with stuff that I'm 
afraid of. And what I want to do with us in the series that we're starting here this morning called Got the Nerve is I want to take you on a journey with one of Jesus' followers named Peter, who was actually incredibly courageous and crazy at the same time. He was incredibly successful and incredibly a failure at the same time. And here's what I want to encourage us toward um, as I think about this series in the life of Peter and the story of, of my friend Debbie now, you know, flying, and us. Faith, faith, this act of moving forward with things that we say we believe requires actually more courage than we realize because fear tells us lies that make us very comfortable sometimes. And faith actually requires us to take, instead of one step forward, sometimes two, five, or ten steps forward, not just a little bit. Sometimes requires a big change, not just a little change. And as we consider, as we consider stepping out, stepping out into areas of your life that otherwise you haven't stepped out yet into or you've been afraid of or nervous of or unsure of the future of. Like stepping out, here's what I want to say about that, stepping out requires facing two fears at one time. It's the fear of failure and the fear of success. We talked about the fear of success last series, but both fears are in play when we think about stepping out into something brand new, into a new season, into a new phase, into a new approach, into a new mentality, into a new faith level. It requires stepping and facing two fears at the same time. What if I fail, but also what if I succeed? Both fears are very real. And so I want, what I want to do with you for five weeks and this morning is simply an introduction. I want to introduce to you the person of Peter. Peter was an incredible leader and an incredible follower of Jesus who did some things that were really great, really amazing, but almost every time he did something amazing, there was failure that came right along the backside of it. And Peter's faith was rarely measured. It was rarely just a little step forward or a slight nuance this way. His faith was, I believe, very practical, but also very full and complete and all in. I doubt that Peter ever struggled with feeling a sense of mediocrity or blah about his faith. Because he just pushed all the cards in on the table all the time. And in that push, also brought great failure along with it, which is amazing to see. And so I want to tell the story of Peter over the next five weeks. This morning I want to introduce him. In the next three weeks I want to tell three different stories of Peter. That are um, stories that if you've been in church, you've heard before. If you haven't, then I'm looking forward to exposing you to these stories of the life of Peter. And in the final week I want to talk about the impact of Peter for people today who call themselves part of the church, who still follow Jesus today. So this morning I want to turn to a couple different passages of Scripture. Um, in, uh, in the Bible near you, there's a Bible in the pew around you if you don't have one on you, and I want to invite you to turn to uh, what we call the Gospel of John. John chapter uh, 1 is where I want to take you. It's a fourth gospel in the New Testament, so if you turn to the right two-thirds of your Bible, you'll see goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. And if you don't own a Bible, there's a Bible in the pew around you. That's our gift to you this morning if you don't have one. But John chapter 1, um, beginning at verse 35 in just a second, but I want you to know that in the 
period of time that I'm going to take you to here, we're going to go to John and then two other Gospels this morning too. So I'm going to have you move around a little bit in your Bible. But in the Gospel of John, uh, we're going to see that there is a man named John, like John the Baptist. And he had some followers of his too. Jesus had his disciples, but John had followers, and that was pretty normal. It was normal to have people who followed, and they were called disciples. Today, we don't necessarily call people disciples, but you might be someone who is a disciple of your favorite artist, your favorite musician, uh, your favorite athlete or sports team. If you follow anything, this is essentially all that is happening, is that John, the, the Baptist, who was like the opening act to Jesus, he was the one who came to prepare the way for Jesus. John came, and he was preparing people for the Messiah so that the people who were following John, get this, the people who were following John, who were his disciples, were constantly on the lookout for the main show, for the main act, not just the opening act, because John was always saying, like, I'm not the one, there's someone greater to come. So John was trying to let everybody know, I'm the opening act, but there's something greater that is to come. And so if you're following John, you're kind of looking with him about who could the one be, you know, where is the Messiah? And John seemed to indicate to you if you're one of his followers and you went with his teaching, and he was a pretty radical guy in his own right, he seemed to indicate that, like, he's coming soon. And so let's pick it up here and we'll see the opening entree to the life of Peter and how this works. So verse 35 of John chapter 1. The next day... John was there again with two of his disciples, and when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God, as if, like, hey, you've been looking for him, we're sitting here, Uh, there he is, look, the Lamb of God. And so when the two disciples, his two disciples, heard him say this, they followed Jesus, they got up and left. So John's two disciples followed Jesus, it's kind of interesting. So turning around, this is as if Jesus is just walking down the road, and all of a sudden these two guys are kind of whispering to each other, and they like, that's Jesus. Okay, well, let's go follow him, because that's what followers do. They follow. So turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you, what do you want? You want a free lunch? You know, what do you, what do you want? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Well, come, he replied, and you will see. And so they went and saw where he was staying and spent that day with him. And it was about the tenth hour. So here's two disciples of John who finally, finally, meet Jesus, the one whom they were looking for. And they spend the day with him. And here's what happens next. Andrew, verse 40. Simon Peter's brother was one of the two who had heard, who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. So Andrew... Simon's brother, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who was a disciple of John who followed Jesus. Are you tracking with me? So get this for a minute. What do you think the conversation would have been like when Andrew came home from following John all over and Peter, who was a fisherman, went and fished all day? Before this moment, what do you think Peter would have thought of Andrew's desire to go out and meet the Messiah someday and follow this guy who was teaching who had eaten locusts and wild honey and was baptizing in a radically, radically new way that was really against the religion at the time. Andrew's out there looking for a Messiah, and meanwhile, Peter isn't. He's fishing, and he's running a pretty successful fishing business, I might add. And so I can just imagine their conversations at night at home or over lunch or whenever they get together for family gatherings, and, and Peter would be like, hey, so Andrew, how's the Messiah hunting going? 
And Andrew's like, well, you know, we haven't found him yet, but don't worry. I mean, I'm sure someday we'll find him, and it'll be incredible when we do. But this John guy's great. Meanwhile, Peter's like, man, you have a good time with that. I'm going to keep fishing because business is booming, and people are coming, and the business is growing, and we're making money. Peter, a very practically oriented man. And so you can imagine when Andrew finally meets the one whom he was looking for, what his first action would be. Look back in John again. Verse 41, the first thing that Andrew did was to find his brother, Simon, and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. Now, I don't know how that conversation went, but I know this, that Peter ended up coming with him, and Andrew brought him to Jesus. I don't know if Andrew's like, Peter, you've got to see him, or Peter's like, if you only stop talking, then I'll go with you, you know, whatever it takes to do that. I don't know how that went down, but that conversation happened immediately, and he brought him to Jesus. So Andrew brings Peter to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. Interesting greeting, which he probably knew that because he was Andrew's brother, and Andrew was the son of John. So you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. What an introduction. What a weird, weird, weird introduction. If you are Peter, and you're walking along, and you, you meet Jesus because Andrew takes him there, and the first thing that he does, like he doesn't even allow you to say hello. He's like, I know you. You're the son of... John, hey, you used to be called, but now I'm changing your name. Oh, what did you want? What an interesting introduction. Now, here's what we know about Peter. We don't see Peter doing anything with this exchange for some time. We have no record that Peter then immediately followed Jesus at this moment. In fact, we have a record of the opposite. That What we think happened after this is Peter was like, hmm, That was interesting. Time to go fishing. Andrew, have a good time with that guy. I'm heading back to the boats. And what Jesus does next in his ministry is he does all kinds of amazing things. The next thing he does is he turns water into wine at the wedding and feast in Galilee. And then he uh, meets with a Pharisee named Nicodemus who came to Jesus at night and asked about being born again, and Jesus tells him that. And then Jesus gives a verse for all NFL stadiums to use when you're kicking a field goal. John 3.16, put that up right on the poster board. That was in the context of Nicodemus' story. This is what it means to be born again. And then Jesus goes through and he overturns the money um, tables in in the temple. And he throws that, and that's crazy stuff right there. He performs various miracles of all kinds, and at the end of the day, all kinds of people start following Jesus. And all of this is happening while Peter, as far as we understand it, is actually not following Jesus. Peter, in all of the time that it took to do all these things that Jesus was doing, is still, as far as we know, fishing. Andrew is in. Peter's fishing. Like that guy who changed my name on the first date? I don't think so. Until we get to Luke chapter 5. I want to invite you to turn over to Luke chapter 5. You're going to have to go backwards in your Bible there a little bit. Luke chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. And this is where we pick an interchange up between Jesus and Peter again. This is the first and next interchange they have after John chapter 1 where Jesus changes his name. The next thing we pick up between the two of them is what happens here in Luke chapter 5. And Jesus has been going around teaching and all kinds of people coming to see him and hear him. Look at Luke 5. 
One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and he asked him to put out a little from shore. And then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. <laughs> this is this is not a good idea. Simon is a fisherman and Jesus is a rabbi, which is great. But rabbis don't fish and fishermen don't rabbi, I guess. So here's Jesus, the rabbi, but the problem that Simon has in this moment is there's all these people here, and Jesus, you actually just asked me to do something really stupid. Like, did anyone tell him, like, the fish don't bite when the sun's out? Like, did any, does he know anything about fishing? Like, this is going to be embarrassing, Jesus. I mean, now, because of what you said, I am compelled to do this, but this isn't this isn't going to end well, Jesus. We actually were just out at night when the fish come up, when it's, the waters are cooler, and now like it's daytime. And, and you have a crowd for this future failure. But uh, if you say so, I, I will, because I have no other choice. And look what he says in verse 5. Master, we worked hard all night and uh, haven't caught anything. I don't know if you knew that. Jesus, but, you know, I know you're omniscient and all that, but I don't know if you knew that. But because you say so, uh, I'll let down the nets, which is the only choice he had. So verse 6. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. And so they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw this... He fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. And then Jesus said to Simon, not to the others, but said to Simon, not to the others, said only to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch Men And so they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him, which I would argue is a very practical response to what just happened. If you're in business and you're making a million dollars a year and someone comes over in the morning and all of a sudden turns your business into a billion-dollar industry and then says, come, I have a job for you, do you think you would leave your post? The answer is yes, of course, because it's actually the most practical thing to do. When someone comes like Jesus did and completely turns your industry on its head and shows you something that you did not have any anticipation could possibly happen. It is the smartest and wisest thing to do to leave what you were doing that you thought was great to find something even greater than. And so Peter realizes, I'm in the presence of a teacher and master who has more power than I am. I'm a sinful man, and he falls down, and then he follows him. And this is where we see Peter follow and begin to follow. And he's pushing all of his chips in, if you will, and being like, I'm all in to follow Jesus. And Peter becomes a spokesman for the twelve. He becomes the one who verbalizes things that the twelve disciples, are, eleven of them, are afraid to say something, but he just says it. 
You know, Peter gives us some great quotes, and you may have heard some of these. This is when they uh, were talking about forgiveness, and Peter says, Peter's the one who says in Matthew 18, then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? It was Peter who said that. It wasn't any of the other disciples. It was Peter. Back in uh, Matthew 19, um, Peter answered him. He said this. And this is in the context of a, a guy, a young guy who was very rich and had a lot of money, and Jesus said, go sell everything you have. And, and all the disciples are sitting there like, well, you told him to sell everything you have. We kind of did, but you know, what's in it for us? And he verbalizes their feelings in this moment, and he's the one who says, we've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Like, you know, I know we're all thinking this. Well, someone just say what we're thinking. All right, Peter, listen, this is, this is what I have to say. Jesus, what do you think about this? Over in Luke chapter 8, verse 45, Jesus says, Who touched me? He asked. And when they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and, and pressing against you. There's this huge crowd of people, and there's a woman who, who was struggling with bleeding came and touched him. And he felt the power go out of him, and there's all these people pressing in. And Peter's like, Jesus, I don't know if you noticed, but there's thousands of people here. Like, I don't know if it's as big as the Eagle Super Bowl parade will be someday, Jesus, but it's pretty big. Big moment, and someone touched you. And so all the disciples are sitting like, I'm not going to say anything. And Peter's the one who says something. He's the one who becomes the leader of the group. And Jesus knows this. And Peter continues to do this. And I want to take you to one more spot. Back it up in your Bible if you have your Bible still open to the Gospel of Matthew. And then we're going to stay here in Matthew for, for the rest of our time. But Matthew chapter 16, it's the first book in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. To get our final picture of who Peter was. Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? It's a great question because of all that he had been doing. And they replied, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So that's the survey results of our community. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? And so he asked the disciples on the whole, you know, who do you all say, and who do you think is going to speak up? And, of course, Peter, the spokesman, the leader, the one who is a great leader of the disciples. So Simon Peter answered, verse 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I mean, I saw you do what you did with the fish. That's why I'm here with you. Like, I saw that power come from you. I've seen what your hands have done. I've seen what your teaching does. I've seen the authority that you have. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. There's no Elijah, there's no John the Baptist, there's no Jeremiah. Like, you're the one. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. And we're going to come back to that passage at the very end of our time in Peter. Powerful moment, and here's Peter standing here in this moment, and honestly, this is profound and amazing. Like, he's the one, Peter's the first one, who says who Jesus is. And this is a big moment for the disciples. But Peter's a spokesman. He says this. And Jesus just pats him on the back the way a Messiah pats you on the back. Like, well done. Like, you've got it. You have verbalized what no one else has verbalized in this area ever yet. You're the first one to say that and to confess that. Peter, well done. And on you, on you, I'm going to build this church. This is an incredible success in the life of Peter. Only to be followed by the next verses. Keep reading in the Gospel of Matthew, verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. Then he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And Peter, verse 22, he took him aside. Took the Messiah aside. And he, 
he began to rebuke him. Imagine what that must have felt like to pull Jesus aside. Jesus, hold on, hold Jesus. There's something to tell you. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. That, that doesn't happen to the Messiah. Jesus, Peter says, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And just a minute ago, Peter Blessed are you among men. Upon you I will build this church. This has not been revealed to you by yourself, but from God in heaven. Minutes later, get behind me, Satan. Peter's story is a story of incredible success and incredible failure wrapped into one package. And he never goes halfway. Ever. And that, to me, is the most striking part of Peter's faith that I want us to process and digest over the coming weeks. Not that faith requires just a small little adjustment, a little fine-tune, an idea, maybe a little nuance here or there, but Peter's faith, Peter's faith, goes all the way in. I'm going to sell all the boats, all this stuff. Jesus, I'm all the way in. Who are you? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's who you are. And by the way, I'm going to tell you that you shouldn't do that, and then you're going to tell me, get behind me, Satan. Okay, I'm going to try something else now over here. Like now we're going to go all in. And this is the model of Peter, and it scares me to have that kind of faith. Because it's not very measured, and I can't predict it. And I'm not sure the outcomes, and I'm afraid of the failure that comes from stepping that far in. I'm uh, really, really big on social media. Those of you who are on social media know that I have an incredible presence on social media. Um, cue the sarcasm emojis or whatever you want to do. Okay. But I do have a quote on my Facebook page, believe it or not, buried somewhere deep down in there 100 years ago when I created that thing from Theodore Roosevelt. And that quote actually came to mind as I thought about this study on Peter. And here's what uh, our friend uh, Theodore Roosevelt had to say. Far better it is to dare mighty things to win glorious triumph, though checkered by failure, than to rank with those poor spirits who neither enjoy nor suffer much because they live in the gray twilight that knows neither victory nor defeat. That's Peter. That is Peter. He knew great success and he knew great failure, but far better to live the checkered failure life than to live in the gray twilight of never knowing, never knowing the wins, and never feeling the pain and the learning and the development of the failures. So here's what I want for you, and here's what I want for me. I want your passion, your faith, your desire to follow Jesus, to, to be a kind of faith and passion that is kick-started again if it has settled into the gray twilight of mediocrity, if it has settled into the gray twilight of passionlessness, if somewhere along the line you've gone from following Jesus to just attending church, if somewhere along the line you have asked, you're asking yourself the question when you put your head on the pillow at night and you're asking, is this all there is? Like, is this the end of it for me? 
For the rest of my Christian life, for the rest of the time that I say I'm a Jesus follower, do I just show up at church and listen to some guy talk for a little while and sing some songs, give some money and go home? Like, is that the end of it? Like, is that what Christianity is for? Is that why Jesus came, that we could even have a building and have church gathered here on Sunday mornings? Or did Jesus come for more than all of this? And is your following and my following really something that we're going to have to stop for a minute and ask, Jesus, am I following like Peter? Am I afraid of the failures that may come if I push my chips in on the table, on my marriage again? If I push my chips in on the table with my friend group at school, and I'm the one who influences, I'm afraid. I'm afraid of what they're going to say if I really start to act on my faith and step out and step out and face the fear of failure and the fear of success. I'm influenced by people around me who are powerful, who are leaders in business, who make a lot of money, and when I'm in the room with them, like my faith just fades to the background, and Jesus is like, I don't know if that's what you want from me, but I feel that. And so I'm influenced by the people around me to just kind of draw it down and not be quite so sincere, not quite be a clear follower of Jesus. And I don't know if that's what you want, but is that the great twilight that, that you're living in? You're living in a family, and maybe in your family, you know that there's a family dynamic that needs to change. Because people look at you and you know, like, I'm a Christian. I'm claiming the name of Jesus Christ, but we don't actually love each other at all. Like, we don't even get together. We haven't forgiven each other for a, a generation. But what if you're supposed to be the one to step out like Peter, into the unknown. And what if failure will come with that? Will you do it anyway? Because that is what faith is going to require, like Peter. And that is why it scares me. But that's why I need to study Peter. And all I want to ask you this morning, all I want to ask you, I don't want you to do anything yet, I just want to ask you, will you pray? For the nerve. Will you pray for the nerve? Will you pray and ask God, God, give me the nerve not to live in the great twilight that knows neither success nor failure. Give me the nerve to be the one who leads and serves my family, my friends, my friend group, my business associates, my future plans and dreams, my response to my health crisis. God, I need the nerve to step out and believe again and get away from the blasé that has settled onto my soul. Peter's story is a story that can awaken us if we will let it. And the next three Sundays are going to be three stories of Peter that hit a particular area of each one of our lives. And I'm looking forward to each of those stories with you to learn more about how to step out. For now, I will say this. We last left our friend Debbie, 30,000 feet in the air, a little bit shaking on our southwest flight to Tampa, Florida. And as we got closer and closer to Tampa, I thought to myself, I better prepare this lady for landing because that can be a little troubling so I told her Debbie here's what's going to happen the plane is going to come down it may help to have the window open so you can see the ground approaching so the big thump you feel will be anticipated the plane is going to hit it's going to bounce at least once and then it's going to shake again uh, when we land and the pilot is going to hit the brakes hard just that's all normal don't just, okay, 
So again, here's what we go through. Let's hold hands as we're coming down. We're talking through. We're breathing through. We're, we're holding across the aisle here, one hand on the barf bag, right? I mean, we're, we're ready for it, and we get close to landing, and Debbie's holding on tight with two hands again, and the plane hits the ground. And as soon as the plane hit the ground, she had the absolute inverse reaction that she had to take off. She began to release her grip. Blood began to flow again in my arm. Because all of a sudden we landed the plane. We were on the ground and she was recovering. She was like, we're, we're, we're here. We're here. We, we landed. We're on the ground. We, we did it. We did it. I did it. I did it. And this joy and this life and this passion kind of came back to her because all of a sudden she knew that she had stepped out and she did it. And the gray twilight that had settled on her heart and soul for 25 years because she was afraid of what it would be like to fly, all of a sudden was gone. And she said, oh, I, someday maybe I can be like you and not afraid to fly. And I said, Debbie, you have just created a new memory today. And this memory needs to replace the 25-year-old one that you have. You can do this and you just did we made our way to baggage claim, made sure she got her stuff, and Jen and I went out to the sidewalk to wait for our ground transport to come. And the sidewalk in Tampa is pretty deep, about three feet or so deep. We're standing back here a little bit, and we see walking down the, uh, the sidewalk, not aware of where we were, Debbie on her phone like this, pulling her bag behind her and you know, her backpack on here. And she was talking to someone, and she said, Yeah, I can't believe I did it. I did it. I made it. And can you believe I sat next to a pastor? But she did it. And I'm extremely proud of Debbie, even though I just met her that day. Her story is an inspiration to me. With all the fear that she had, with her legs almost buckling, the courage, gosh, the courage to get on that plane and make it to Tampa. Remove that gray twilight from her soul and return to passion and joy in life. And I'm just telling you, this is a story of Peter and this is a story of faith. To take not just one step, but two or ten steps forward, even if checkered by failure. That will be the story of Got the Nerve for the next four weeks. Be glad to have you back. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, I thank you for the chance to settle in a little bit on this life of Peter and just introduce to our collective conscience this idea of a faith that is aggressive and bold and rooted to a belief that as the Savior of the world, as the Messiah, your power and strength exceeds ours and the wisest and smartest thing to do is to be all in and not to go halfway. So I pray for us that you would give us the nerve, whether that nerve needs to be with our roommate, with our finances, with our emotional health, with the lies that we tell ourselves when we look at ourselves in the mirror, with forgiveness that we have to extend because it's been uh, you know, tearing away at us on the inside, whether it's nerve about how to run our business um, diametrically differently than how we have been running it now because we know that we're not really running things nearly the way that we should be running them. Whatever this might be, I pray that you would give us the nerve 
to follow you like Peter did, regardless of the checkered failures that will come. Give us the courage, I would pray, to step not just one, but two, three, four, five steps in, to step out and face the fear of failure and the fear of success. Father, we love you and we thank you for the time that we can share this morning. Give us courage to act on what we need to act on. And we will pray this in Jesus' name.